0: Hi, listeners. It's Kevin here. So, before we get going, I want to take a sec to tell you about a new podcast called Heat of the Moment. Produced by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this 12 part series looks at the climate crisis from a number of different angles, including food waste, energy production, and deforestation, and provides hope for a way forward. Each episode features a comprehensive interview with an expert, as well as an in depth field report. That's Heat of the Moment. Look for it on your favorite podcast platform. So that was one podcast recommendation. But you could say that this whole episode is really a recommendation one. With so many of us having more time on our hands these days, many of us are finding all kinds of new things to do, from baking bread to finding new great shows. And in that spirit, I wanted to use this chance to feature the work of one podcast that I personally love called The Plasosphere. The personal project of Berlin journalist Anja Krieger, each episode of The Plasosphere takes listeners on a journey into the surprisingly complex world of plastics and the myriad challenges that this long-lasting wonder material has brought into the world. On the surface of things, it might not seem like plastics and climate change have much to do with one another, but dig a bit deeper and things get fuzzy. The vast majority of the world's plastic, for example, is produced out of the raw materials provided by fossil fuels, and plastic pollution is responsible for a considerable amount of greenhouse gases. So with the right lens, plastics could be said to have an intimate relationship with the overall climate change problem. I'm going to be playing for you an episode of the Plasosphere a bit later that delves into the confusing world of bioplastics. But first, I wanted to speak to Anya directly about the podcast, the challenges we are facing with plastic pollution, and how her interest in the issue first began. So here's that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Anya, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Kevin.
0: Could you just tell me in a nutshell about your your podcast, the Plastosphere?
1: Yeah, the Plastosphere is the podcast on plastic, people, and the planet. Um, and what I do is I explore the really complicated relationship that we have with this material that we've created about a hundred years ago. Plastics started in the early twentieth century and became more and more important, especially after the World War. And then in the 50s, it really took off in the 50s and 70s that we were um, using plastics for all kinds of applications. And so, as you know, in recent years, the downside of that dependence on plastic has emerged, which is that it causes a lot of pollution, And I think probably everyone has heard about plastic in the oceans, but it's also in the soils, in the rivers, in the air. It's even in Arctic snow. Um, So the question really is, similar to climate change, progress has developed together with plastics as it has developed together with fossil fuels. And now what can we do to decrease the harm of uh, or that decrease the side effects that plastic has.
0: Why did plastics become so popular? Why did we humans, you know, start using it so widely?
1: Yeah, I mean plastics are have a lot of advantages. They are um they are very cheap because they're made from uh, basically waste products of fossil fuels. They are um plastic, meaning you know, you can Mold them or shape them in pretty much any form you like. Um, you can color them. You can—they're so uh, versatile.
0: In one comment in the uh, one of the episodes, I believe you quote someone, and they say something like, "Asking how many different types of plastics there are would be like asking how many different types of of bread <laughs> uh, there are." So, so when, when we're talking about plastics, we're really not talking about one thing, right? We're we're talking about many different types of of materials?
1: Oh, yeah, you're referring to what uh, Linda Emerald Zettler said. She's a she's a microbiologist. And I think in the episode on bioplastics, she says that um, we're talking about plastics as if it's one thing, like this monolithic um, one material, but it's not true. There are like so many different kinds. When it comes to recycling, they're already like more than a handful. And then Uh, There are all these specific materials that come out of plastics when you mix them with um, additives. And, you know, you can even mix different synthetic polymers together. And so we get like all these different materials with all these different properties and um, with different chemicals that will be included in them, you know, some of which we don't even know are in there, and some of which the producers even might not know are in there.
0: How did uh, your journey to to making this podcast actually begin? It it sounds from what I've heard in the podcast that uh, it goes quite far back, actually.
1: Yeah, around 10 years ago, I first read about the trash that was accumulating in the Pacific Ocean, and that... I think, captured my imagination as it captured many other people's imagination. And since I was a journalist, I decided to do research on it. Um, And interestingly, the first report I ever did that was connected to plastic pollution was on how to cook your own bioplastics. So it started with that. It's kind of interesting because I thought that it might be a solution to plastic pollution, which I later learned that it's probably not really... The solution.
0: Because it has the same problems uh, with breaking down?
1: Because, um, because bioplastics, I think, have the same problem that plastics have in general. It's like a myriad of materials. And um, I think the major problem with biodegradable plastics is that um, what you are trying to make is basically... You're trying to make a material that fulfills all the needs you have for a material. Oftentimes it needs to be durable. You know, it, you, you don't want it to break down while it's in use. But then once you discard it or, you know, if you lose it in the environment, you want it to disappear magically. And that's really hard to do because what you are basically trying to make is like a food delivery service for microbes right you're trying to you're trying to deliver you're trying to make a material that at the same time as it's a product for you later on it has a second life and that's being food for microbes and so you have to consider your clients the microbes and the microbes are different in every part of the environment and so they might or might not be able to break it down so I think that's really the, the basic problem with making biodegradable plastics because in some parts of the environment, there just aren't that many microbes or the microbes that are there might biodegrade it very slowly or might not be able to do, in, do it in those conditions. Or it might take just years, you know. And I think then there's the, the other problem that with many kinds of products, you don't want them to degrade. You want them to be durable. You want them to last many years, right?
0: Right. It's uh, it's kind of ironic or cruel that the one of the things that makes plastic so useful to us, the fact that it, it's durable, is also what makes it such a, a big problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, there's the irony of what we use this durability for, right? Like... Why should we use a material that's so durable for something that's thrown away after just a split second or after just like a very short time, like packaging? You know,
0: that's a, that's a good point. If it's a washing machine, it's one thing, but if it's uh, literally something that's used one one time and then thrown away, uh, it's a bit different.
1: Right. Like, I mean, if it's the interior of a car that is then lighter and then um, saves fossil fuels because the car over its lifetime is much more fuel efficient, that might make sense, right? But yeah, for packaging, I think there's a r- really question if we should use materials that are so, so durable for that kind of application, especially because they are so prone to being blown into into in the environment. You know, they're so light, like a plastic bag or plastic packaging can can get lost so easily.
0: Was there anything else that made you, I mean, from those initial reports that you worked on, um, was there anything else that made it hit closer to home for you that made you really want to spend time on this subject?
1: I think it just developed um, with every report I did on it. I think I had like an initial fascination with this, Idea that the trash of our civilization ends up all the way out there in the middle of the Pacific. And then from there, I started to research it. And with every expert that I talked to, it just became more interesting and more complicated. And as time went by, we learned more about where it was ending up and that it was not only, you know, it was not only bigger pieces. Um, floating around in the water it was also tinier and tinier pieces found in all all compartments of the environment pretty much so I think yeah so I think it just became more and more complex and I just became more and more aware how how difficult it would be to solve it and I became more and more aware of the plastic around me and how important it is like, for example, you and I would probably not be able to make a podcast if we if it wasn't for plastics. so um, I mean, yeah, we've built our world, we've built it into our world, and now we have these side effects, and I think it's a similar problem to other challenges like climate change or the way we use land or you know we produce our food. Um, we've built this world and it has side effects that become more and more obvious and we need to change now. So how can we do that? And so I think that that was what triggered me to make a whole series about it.
0: And what are the, the side effects? So it's it, the plastic has found itself everywhere now in the, you know, the global ecosystem. What, what are the main side effects or consequences of, of it being so prolifically dispersed?
1: I think there are the obvious side effects, you know, whales washing up with their stomachs full of plastic um, and, you know, it's hard to say if they really died from it or if they were weakened by it and died from th- something else, but it's probably not good if you have a whole stomach full of plastic. Seabirds have the same problem, turtles are confusing plastic bags for for um, jellyfish and, you know. Those are the obvious ones or, or seals getting entangled, you know, these, these very graphic images of seals having this, having like a bit of like fishing line around their neck and it cuts into their flesh. So I think those um, are the obvious effects that affect, I think, about 900 species now, ingestion, entanglement, um, suffocation and so forth. And there's a question whether this has an effect on the population level. You know, does this really threaten a species? Or, you know, do certain creatures really die out because of that? I don't think that's solved. But I think um, we should avoid suffering as good as we can for every individual of every species that we can. So I think that the fact that species are harmed by these bigger pieces of trash is reason enough to do something. But there's also this whole um, development of plastics breaking down more and more into ever tinier pieces. And we don't really know how small they get. So um, I spoke to this woman for the podcast for the second episode who had found nanoplastics in the Atlantic for the first time, which is a pretty difficult detection process. But um, nanoplastics are in the size range of a virus. So it could get that small. We don't really know how much nanoplastics is in, is in the environment. We know more about microplastics. But that is the development, you know, where where we don't yet know what that will mean for when it enters animals or when it enters the food chain. So I think that's something to be concerned about. It's not something that has been um, researched to the point that we can really say what kind of harm it causes, If we're lucky, it won't cause as much harm as we might speculate now. But um, I think it's something we really have to be concerned about, that we are letting a material basically diffuse into every part of the environment where we don't really know what it's going to do to the creatures that live there.
0: And why are there nano and and microplastics? Is it that... They're just being broken apart, but not necessarily decomposing into the the raw elements. Is that what's going on?
1: Yeah, they're, they're broken down by UV light or wave action in the water, for example. Um, and they're just falling apart. I mean, I don't know if you've seen it with some of the products you have. But for example, my backpack has like an inner lining made of a different kind of plastic from the other part of the backpack and after 10 years or so it just started to crumble and started to produce these really tiny um tiny particles basically and I guess every time I took something out of my backpack it um shed or with my um with the wind protection for my little recorder same thing it just started the microphone started to produce microplastics um and yeah I mean there are there are these kinds of microplastics from breaking down, but there are also some intentionally made microplastics that are put into products, for example, in cosmetics or in cleaning agents um, to, you know, because they, they have certain qualities, for example, for appealing, you know, for cleaning yourself. And I mean, there's been a big campaign about that, Beat the Microbeat. And I think that is you know, toothpastes probably don't contain microplastics that much anymore, but um, still, there are there are a lot of ways that microplastics can enter the environment. And the biggest mass of microplastics comes from products breaking down in the environment.
0: Uh, I imagine from doing this uh, this podcast, and I've heard as much mentioned by you on on the show, is that uh, you must become very aware of uh, the plastics that you interact with on a on a day-to-day basis Um, and I was wondering how how your relationship to plastics has changed through you know since basically you you began on this journey say you know almost 10 years ago
1: yeah it has changed the first thing I did of course was I I did not take plastic bags anymore I used the cloth bags that I already had at home to go shopping um, or a backpack and then I, I got myself um, a water bottle, you know, a stainless steel water bottle that I use until today. So I started with these simple low-hanging fruits, but I would say that with many other products, I'm still using plastics just like everyone else is using plastics. And yeah, it, um, it causes cognitive dissonance. But yeah, I think I've become a lot more aware of plastics in general, but also of the fact that it's not one material, but many, many different materials. But I still have really, I have problems distinguishing them. I cannot, if you asked me like, what are your headphones made of? I would not be able to tell you what the different parts are made of because I can't see it or because I don't know it. So I I still think it's so complicated to know what what material plastics really are.
0: Would you say that the problem is mostly one of uh, disposal? Like if if we could perfectly dispose of plastics and ensure that everything was actually disposed of correctly, would the problem be solved?
1: It would seem so, right? If it wasn't for the shedding, if it wasn't for the fragments that are coming off synthetic polymers while they are in use— So you would always have this uh, microplastic production. You know, some of it comes from, from tires, from car tires or bike tires. So how would you capture that and dispose of that? That's pretty impossible. But I also think that waste management has its limits because, you know, you create this waste and then you have to throw it away but there's no way so what's happening it has to go into one of the options for waste disposal which is you know incineration and depending on the kind of plant you have that could cause dioxins or furans and there's side effects attached to that then another option is recycling which has worked uh, exceptionally little over the past decades you know, I mean, I learned in school, I don't know, you probably learned it too, that you got to recycle, you got to throw it in the right bin, but the problem is that such a small proportion of overall plastics production has been recycled that it hasn't really worked to solve the problem. And then you could just dump it on a on a landfill or, you know, dispose of it in the ground, but then you have to have this space where you put it. And then depending on what's in the plastics, you know, it it pollutes the water and so forth. So I think just better waste management won't solve the plastic crisis.
0: Are there any stories uh, from the podcast or people that you've met that you would specifically like to mention uh, that have left an impression on you?
1: Ha, huh, good question. I think one encounter, one interview really left an, a big impression, which was when I met um, Chris Jordan, this photographer. So what he wanted to do initially was he wanted to take a picture of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And one activist had said to him, you know, if you want to take a picture of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, go to Midway Island all the way in the middle of the Pacific and take pictures of these albatross chicks there. And these little albatross chicks, basically just their, their bones and feathers left with the plastics in their stomachs. And these are really cruel pictures that have gone viral. Uh, on the internet and um he's basically become famous for these pictures and i met him and talked to him about the story that happened afterwards and i thought that was really interesting because after he took these pictures he got all these devastated comments and and messages from people saying you know this is terrible and you know basically he was like oh no i i put out these terrible pictures and people are devastated now and and he felt devastated himself too and said he fell into a depression. But what he did was after that, he went back to this island where he had seen the dead albatross chicks and he met the live albatrosses and he started to get to know the species and the life of these animals and started to love them and portray them and understand them better. And he went back several times over several years. It was a huge project, and he turned it into a film called Albatross. And I think that was a very impressive story for me because he went from this devastation and this looking into the mirror of our civilization and through seeing these chicks ingesting the plastic, he got to know and understand this other species, and started to understand that we have to develop a new relationship to um, the world that we are part of.
0: One thing that you do an episode on is uh, plastics and the climate. And uh, on the one hand, as you mentioned, plastic components can make things lighter, like airplanes or or cars, and in that way help us burn less fossil fuels. But on the other hand, I guess they're also part of this overall um, way of, of life that you know we have for ourselves in the 21st century where we consume raw materials and raw resources could you just talk to me about your thoughts on the relationship between these these two problems
1: yeah the answer is complicated yeah i i think they are both part of the same era and they're also i mean 99 of all plastics are made from byproducts of fossil fuels so they come from the same source and from the same producers. Um, and the fact that they are a waste product also made them so cheap. So they have the same roots, I'd say. But then, as you say, they can, we, we can use them in the fight against climate change in some ways. For example, you know, wind turbines and solar panels. I don't think they can or I don't think there are any without plastics. At this point, I'm not an expert in that, but I don't think so. So, so it can go both ways, and um, of course, the production of plastics uh, uses energy and fossil fuels. I think what when I did the episodes on plastics and climate change, which was about one and a half years ago, I did not yet really understand this close connection between fossil fuel extraction and plastics. And I think that is something that um, a new film, a new documentary um, shows very clearly. It's called The Story of Plastic. And I I just recently watched it and I can highly recommend it because it goes from extraction to disposal or to pollution and shows how linked these two fields are.
0: And after doing the podcast, I mean, it's clear that it sounds like there's not going to be one solution um, and that. You know, if, if we need them for solar panels and uh, wind turbines, it seems like, well, you know, plastics are here to stay. So after being in this topic for, for as long as you have, do you have any more thoughts on what, what the solution actually looks like or what parts of the solution look like?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that we will probably always use some plastics. That's my guess. Plastics are definitely here to stay because we've already produced like eight billion tons of it or so, and we're keep, we keep we keep producing more. So, in the environment, it'll all also be a fact um, for a long time, and we don't know how it how long it takes to break down. In terms of the solutions, I think there's really not one solution and no silver bullet. Of course, as with all these wicked problems, but. I tend to believe less in the technological solutions today than I did 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I started, you know, thinking bioplastics were the solution. And today, I think maybe they are a solution for a few applications, but for most applications, probably not. I mean, biodegradable bioplastics. Um, Recycling, I'm also not convinced that that will solve the problem entirely some plastics might be economically recyclable and factually recycled others might be recyclable but will never be recycled you know and some products are just you know there are several layers of plastics bound together so you know it it would be so expensive or even impossible to recycle them um cleanup cleanup ideas um are very popular. Uh, I I think maybe for if you find if satellite images show big patches of let's say fishing nets that are ghost fishing and keep killing animals, maybe it makes sense to go and take them out. But I don't think we we can really feasibly clean the oceans. River cleanup might be a little more feasible, but we also still have to see what that means for the river ecosystem. If we put river cleaners in every river, but at least that's um, more of a point source. So maybe that will be part of the solution. But I think that if we look at the big picture, it will be just like, I believe it has to be with climate change, that We really fundamentally rethink um, the systems that we've built and the amount of stuff that we produce and consume and that we, you know, cut out what is not necessary and that we have the, the right regulations and rules for that internationally and in every country.
0: And on that front, do you see signs for hope? Because, uh, as a layperson in this topic, I've certainly—it seems to have really taken off as a as a subject in the past two years, in terms of the public consciousness. And you know, at least the things like plastic straws and plastic bags, although that might be a a small part of the overall problem, it seems to suddenly, yeah, be very consciously known by a huge part of uh, the of society.
1: I think there has been like a big. Outcry about plastics in the past years. And I think from there we have to come maybe to a more differentiated picture and see you know, is it really about the material or is it about um, consumption patterns or is it about disposability or single use? You know, um, for example, paper bags have a, usually a a much worse footprint than a plastic bag if you compare one-time use or cotton bags have to be used, I don't know how many thousands of times until they reach the same low footprint as a plastic bag. So I think we really have to be careful to think about what is the problem. But I think we also have to redefine our relationship with plastics and what we use this material for. And, and I think that is happening right now. So I have hope. Yeah.
0: Great. Well, Anya Krieger, thanks so much for, for doing the podcast. And thanks for speaking to me today.
1: Thank you, Kevin. And also for doing your podcast, which I really love. Oh,
0: thank you. That was my interview with Anya Krieger, the journalist behind the Plasosphere. And now here, as promised, is her episode, Confused About Bioplastics. This is uh, an episode that I, I personally found super interesting because it cleared up, or maybe better put, it made clear how confusing this whole world of bioplastics is, and how it's not quite as straightforward as you might suspect when you buy something that's been labeled as being a bioplastic. So, here it is.
1: You're listening to Plastosphere, the podcast on plastic, people, and the planet. I'm your host, Anja Krieger. In this episode, I want to take a closer look at these new materials that seem to be popping up all over the market. Plastics that are advertised as compostable, biodegradable, or made from plants. When I first heard about bioplastics, I thought that this is the solution to our plastic problems. But then I found out that it's much more complicated. In 2012, I followed a bioplastic back to the factory and talked to producers and scientists here in Germany. Back then, all the experts told me that bioplastics are no solution for marine pollution. But that was seven years ago, and technology is always advancing. Plastic in the ocean is now recognized as a major issue around the world, and consumers are asking for alternatives. So I think it's time for an update. Can bioplastics solve our issues with trash? And what does bio even mean?
2: There are a lot of bioplastics or materials that are called bioplastics that are not biodegradable. They are bio-based. They are made from plants, but they are not biodegradable. And this is because biodegradable depends on the chemical structure of the molecule and not by the source it is made of.
1: A couple of weeks ago, I met with Constanze Isbrücker, She's a chemist and head of environmental affairs at European Bioplastics. That's the industry association here on the continent. At this point, they represent a tiny niche market. Bioplastics contribute less than 1% to overall plastics production. But the market is growing.
2: And it's really dominated by so-called drop-in materials, like, for example, bio-based polyethylene or bio-based PET. And um, these materials are just more or less equivalent to their fossil-based counterparts. So you can use them in the same applications. You can make bio-based PET bottles, for example, or you can produce a a bio-based PE packaging.
1: These plastics are really convenient for the industry. Producers and recyclers can just drop them into their existing infrastructure without having to buy new machines. That's why they are called drop in materials. They are made on the basis of plants, like sugarcane or corn, but are chemically identical with conventional plastics made from oil or gas. More than half of all bioplastics on the market are just bio based, not biodegradable. And that means that they cause the same kind of pollution as normal plastics. So what's the point in producing them if they are not designed to break down in the environment?
2: I mean, the biggest benefit is, of course, very simply said, it's made from renewable resources. That means we get independent from oil or other fossil resources. And this has a very good impact on the whole carbon footprint. You save carbon dioxide because a plant takes up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And this carbon dioxide is then stored in your biobased product. And the product maybe can be recycled, when it cannot be recycled any longer, it will be most probably incinerated, and then the carbon dioxide is set free. But all in all, this is a quite positive or neutral carbon dioxide balance.
1: I wondered if people know about the drop in bioplastics that do not biodegrade. So I went out to the streets of Berlin, did you know that there are bioplastics that are bio-based, made from natural materials, but they're not biodegradable? Oh, Did you know okay. that? Okay. No. I didn't know that. And they're chemically identical to conventional plastics, like they're the same? They're PET oh. or PP or PE, do you know that? No, I didn't know that. Why are they entitled to be named bioplastics then? They are made from a renewable source and so they save fossil fuels. I see, I see. Well,
2: but still, I I think probably we then have to define better how to certify bioplastics because uh, one important thing, of course, how you produce it is important, but also um, even more important is how it does disintegrate. And if it is not disintegrating, it shouldn't be called bioplastic.
1: I imagine biobased is a lot more natural and would degrade, not instantaneously, but within a couple of months.
2: Isn't it, I mean, one is how it's made and one's how it's thrown away. So if something's biobased, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be able to go away. And same for the other way around, right? Can't you make things that would go away easy but aren't made from renewable stuff? Yeah, I don't know.
1: That's true. There are plastics derived from fossil sources that are in fact biodegradable. Just as there are plastics made from plants that do not biodegrade. Welcome to the complicated world of bioplastics. And growing plants to make plastic might cause other issues. Critics say this puts pressure on land needed to grow food. Bioplastic farms could threaten biodiversity and lead to an increase in monoculture cropping, pesticide and water use. The industry is trying to tackle this by switching to algae and waste materials as a feedstock. But they still have a long way to go. So plastics made from plants do not necessarily have a better footprint. And over 60% of them do not biodegrade, which means they will cause the same pollution as normal plastics. But what about the biodegradable ones? Can they help us tackle the problem? To find out more about biopolymers, I called up a chemist.
3: I believe biodegradable plastics are a great idea. However, it's difficult to make, let's say, a good biodegradable polymer. And I believe there's no one-fits-all solution.
1: Frederik Wurm is a scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Polymer Research in the German city of Mainz. He and his colleagues work on designing molecules for materials, which include biodegradable plastics. The lab is developing substitutes for polyethylene, as well as polymers for medical applications and mulch films for agriculture.
3: We need different properties of plastics in different applications. Sometimes it's lifetime, sometimes it's where they are used, if it's a humid area or if it's a very dry area. If you would like to pack a liquid, you probably need a different property than if you would pack something which is very dry, like flour or so.
1: When it comes to biodegradable plastics, the challenge for chemists like Friedrich Wurm is to try to develop a material that lives not one, but two lives. The first one with all the necessary and desired functions for that product. And the second as food for microorganisms. Because that's what biodegradation means.
3: And depending on the kind and the amount of microorganisms, this can take long or can be a fast process. So thinking about seawater, where we have a lot of plastic waste currently, seawater is typically not so warm, so most of the sea is cold. And there are also not so many microorganisms around. That's why many of the classical, what people call biodegradable, they do not degrade in seawaters, or they take ages to degrade.
1: The sun, waves or marine animals can break up plastics into smaller pieces. But that's not enough for the material to really enter back into the natural cycle. That's just simple degradation, and it will lead to yet more microplastics. For true biodegradation, we need organisms that can attack and completely break down the long molecule chains of the plastic.
3: Um, So making the long chains into shorter chains or into fragments of these chains. And in the end, in the ideal case, they can also use that to build it up into their own organism and grow basically food for them. This is the process we call bioassimilation, and in the end mineralization, where the material is really used in uh, processes of the organism.
1: Microbes produce enzymes, and some of them can act like knives and cut biodegradable plastic. But not every microorganism has the right knife for every type of polymer. So we need the right microbe with the right enzyme for the right plastic. If the microbe can break the plastic into small enough chunks, it can adjust them. And then, not unlike what happens when we eat, the microbe can use the food to gain energy and weight. In the process, it produces water, CO2 or methane. Frederik Wurm carries out a series of tests in the lab to see if a plastic biodegrades. He starts by exposing it to harsh acids or bases. If that doesn't work, it's clearly not biodegradable. If it does, he sees if enzymes can do the job.
3: And the final test is typically field testing, that I, for example, bury this in the soil or put this in seawater or put this in a compost or in activated sludge from a sewage plant. And I see if these organisms can degrade the material.
1: What would you expect? What kind of qualities should this plastic have? It should be able to disintegrate very quickly, very quickly meaning within a year.
2: Well, it should happen immediately. And, uh, but it all depends on the application.
1: When I hear biodegradable plastic, I expect it's still going to take you know, a, a couple of years to degrade. I think normal plastic is 500 years. So when somebody tells me biodegradable, I expect maybe 5, 10 years. Still take a long time, but a lot better than what we have now. Even biodegradable plastics can take years to completely break down in the environment, if they do at all. And there is not only one kind, but many different types, which all behave in different ways in different places.
4: You're perfectly justified in being confused.
1: <laughs> I called up Linda Ameral Zettler, a microbiologist at the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research. She and her team discovered the plastosphere— the new ecosystems growing on microplastics in the ocean, which also gave name to this podcast. She's also very much involved in the discussion on biodegradable plastics. Linda explained to me how crucial it is to consider the time it takes for a plastic to completely break
4: down. Because everything's biodegradable over thousands of, of years. At some point, everything's biodegradable, right? But really we want things that are going to be biodegradable and compostable in a reasonable time frame. And I I think that, you know, that is an important caveat, is when people think about how long things take to degrade and biodegrade in the environment, there needs to be a concept of time attached to the, the sort of definition.
1: Linda is part of a committee that deals with environmentally degradable plastics at ASTM International, the former American Society for Testing and Materials. ASTM is one of the organizations which develop voluntary standards for the industry. To get one of their labels, producers have to show that their plastic fulfills the criteria to biodegrade in a certain setting. Like for example in industrial composting, with hot and humid compost heaps. But when it comes to the open environment, especially the
4: ocean, creating a standard gets truly tricky one of the biggest challenges and discussions that this community is having is whether the standards need to be reflective completely reflective of what's of the marine environment or whether it's it's acceptable to sort of have a standard that tells us something about sort of the optimal scenario where under warmer temperatures and sunlight and conditions where there's the most sort of favorable conditions for biodegradation. So the complete breakdown of plastic into molecules, simple molecules that organisms can directly use completely, whether, um, you know, it makes sense to, to, to just do those under conditions where you can see the complete end product being total Uh, use and incorporation or uh, CO2 respiration.
1: For the marine environment, there is no standard for biodegradable plastics yet to clearly pass or fail. And the question is whether there ever can be one. Because the conditions in different parts of the oceans are not the same. They can be warmer or colder, lighter or darker, and more or less salty. And each ecosystem is inhabited by different organisms, including the microbes which might or might not be able to break down the plastics. At Hydra, a private research institute with a station on the Italian island of Elba, marine biologist Christian Lott and his team test biodegradable plastics. They immerse them in different ocean environments for example, in the Mediterranean or the Arctic.
5: Or we do it in the mangroves, in the tropics, where you have mosquitoes, you have to dig holes in the sand or in the mud with spiders and snakes around you. So it's it's challenging sometimes, but it's this is the work we love.
1: It's an adventurous task and one that needs a lot of expertise. Christian and his partner have developed a special testing frame so that their plastic samples don't get swept away with the currents underwater. Their field tests can run for years, and this way they can safely retrieve and analyze their samples. Most of the plastics tested at Hydra have already been shown to biodegrade under marine conditions in the lab.
5: But the critique is that these laboratory tests that are also found in in American and European and ISO standards are optimized and do not necessarily reflect the conditions in the wild, in the nature, in the rivers, in soil, or in the ocean. And then we as marine biologists come into play and do these tests in an open system under the water, at the beach, in the mangroves, in a coral reef, in the sand, and observe how these materials degrade knowing that in a lab condition, they would be eaten by bacteria.
1: There's one type of biodegradable plastic that seems to be almost impossible to digest for marine microbes, PLA or polylactic acid. It's a quite popular material.
5: The structure of PLA, the chemical structure, is so, let's say, dense, that it's really hard to be attacked by bacteria or fungi. This only works at higher temperatures, or with uh, strong acids. So these are the conditions you find in industrial compost with pure PLA. But you can modify, and this is the art of bioplastics manufacturing, you can blend, for instance, PLA with other substances to make them more prone to hydrolysis, which is the initial chemical process, and then to the degradation of the polymer itself by by bacteria, for instance, or fungi.
1: Pure PLA is not readily biodegradable in the ocean. But Christian and the Hydro team found that all the plastics that didn't biodegrade in the lab also did so in their field tests.
5: But you have to keep in mind that also natural materials in the wrong, let's say, situation conserve forever. We have fish fossils that after 300 million years, still show color from polymers, natural polymers.
1: So we can never say for sure if any material biodegrades in the environment. It really depends on where a piece of plastic ends up on its journey through the oceans, which is pretty impossible to predict.
5: Some of the um, very well degradable materials, which, by the way, are produced by bacteria, which are called polyhydroxyalkanoates. They degrade in a tropical environment on the sea floor in a thin foil within one to two months. But in the Mediterranean, it can take 10 times as much. And imagine in the Arctic, in the ice, or at ice-cold water, or in the deep sea, where we have zero degrees to four degrees, hardly any uh, nutrients around, Bacteria will take or will have a hard time to digest these materials.
6: Certainly they degrade faster than traditional plastics in the marine environments, but still they take time to degrade. And uh, in the meantime, if a turtle or a dolphin meets a biodegradable bag, uh, they could, uh, you know, mistakenly consider them as foods or something like that, and so this might be a problem.
1: Biodegradable plastics are no solution to marine pollution, says Enzo Favuino. He's a waste management expert at the Scuola Agraria del Parco di Monza. In his country, Italy, all plastic bags have to be compostable. And the industrial composters in the country accept and process these biodegradable bags together with the food waste. In some other places, like my home country of Germany, that's not the case
6: we have long been using compostable plastics as a tool connected to separate collection programs for organics. In Italy, there is a long tradition of using such compostable plastics in order to maximize the captures of organic waste, which in turn minimizes uh, the percentage of organics inside residual waste. And therefore it helps us optimize the separate collection systems as a whole.
1: Enzo serves as the chair of the Scientific Committee of Zero Waste Europe. He says that it is crucial to collect as much organic waste as possible to reduce the trash that goes to incinerators and landfills. The compostable plastic bags can help with that, Enzo says. They make it more convenient for people to collect their food scraps or garden waste separately. And that means that these organic materials don't end up in the residual trash. With less organics decaying in these bins, waste management operators can come by less often to pick them up. And that in turn motivates people to collect paper, glass, plastic and metal separately. Materials that can then be easily recycled. Another advantage is that less organic waste ends up on landfills and dumps. There it can produce methane, a powerful greenhouse gas.
6: It's 21 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. And so this is the largest contribution uh, to climate change from the waste management sector.
1: So the separate collection of kitchen and garden waste has two benefits for the environment. More recycling and less greenhouse gases. To this end, Enso supports the use of compostable plastic bags. It's a closed system... The bags are sent to industrial facilities where they can biodegrade under controlled conditions. And that is very different from composting at home in a garden. Which is why Enzo does not support a standard for home compostable plastics.
6: First of all, uh, compostability in home composting systems makes no sense whatsoever to my opinion because people doing home composting would not need the compostable bags of course, because they just take the food scraps and they put them in the composting heap or in the composting bin in their backyard. But also, it gets the wrong message across because people would be mistakenly led to think that if it composts in the backyard, it would compost also in the countryside, which is utterly wrong, of course.
4: We speak of plastic as this monolithic giant, right? We speak of plastic as, as if it's one thing, but it's not. It's thousands of things.
1: Just as there are many different conventional plastics, there are different biodegradable ones. Different polymers can be mixed together in the products we buy. And what's often added is a whole array of chemicals. These substances can make the plastic soft or durable, transparent or colorful, or they protect it from sunlight or fire. It is the toxic potential of some of these additives and other substances from production that many people worry about. A woman from Vietnam I met on the street told me she expected bioplastics to be different.
2: I expect it will be better for the environment in and also contain less like toxic ingredients, I believe. Yeah, and their process, like making process, wouldn't be that bad for the environment. And also they must be like strictly supervised.
1: This would be nice, but new research suggests otherwise.
7: What I can tell from my research is that bioplastics are not necessarily safer than conventional plastics with regard to the toxicity of the chemical mixtures they include.
1: This is Lisa Zimmermann, a PhD student at the Department of Aquatic Ecotoxicology at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. So there might
7: be products that might be better, there might be others which might not necessarily be better with concerns to the um, toxicity of the chemicals they include. But we can't say, okay, overall um, the chemical toxicity of bioplastics is less than of conventional plastics.
1: Lisa was at a conference in Helsinki when we Skyped. She had just presented first results from her experiments with chemical mixtures she extracted from bio-based and biodegradable plastics. One organism she worked with was a bioluminescent bacterium which can glow.
7: And If something interferes with the metabolic activity of this bacteria, the luminescence decreases. And the more the luminescence decreases, the higher something seems to interfere with the metabolism of this organism. So that's a measurement for what we call baseline toxicity. And what I saw, for example, in this essay that more than, or it was around two-thirds of all the plastics products, bioplastic products I tested, they inhibited these bioluminescent, so they somehow seemed to interfere with the metabolism of this organism.
1: I often go to a farmer's market here in my neighborhood in Berlin. Not long ago, one of the organic farmers there offered me a bag that looked like plastic. I said, no, I don't take plastic bags anymore. But he said, no, this isn't plastic. Which made me really curious, so I accepted it. It was a white bag with a big green tree printed on the side, and there was a description in Polish on it. For the sake of the environment, an oxodegradable bag, it translated. Later, I learned that these are conventional plastics like polyethylene. But they are mixed with metal compounds that make them fall apart faster. A report by the United Nations Environment Programme says that it hasn't been proven that oxoplastics truly biodegrade. It is feared they might just accelerate microplastic
4: pollution. I told Linda the story of the bag I got from the organic farmer you know, it's not, it clearly is not his fault, right? I mean, how can, you know, the green grocer or the, the organic farmer stay on top of all this controversy, <laughs> right? I mean, I can barely stay on top of all this controversy. And I, you know, I'm dedicating a large part of my, my career to this problem. But but there you have it, right? You have this, this scenario where people really want to embrace and, and do the right thing. And yet, um, you know, We're being misled. How to to confront that?
1: The European Union has now decided to ban oxodegradable plastics. And there's another kind, the so-called enzyme-mediated plastics, which haven't been proven to truly biodegrade, according to European bioplastics. Their industry expert also told me that there have been misuses of the accepted standards and labels. No wonder it's so hard for us consumers to understand whether the claims we find on a product are legitimate or not. Three years ago, Imogen Knapper, a PhD student at the University of Plymouth in the UK, collected bags in the stores that were touted as degradable or even planet-safe. She submerged some of them in the sea, buried others in the soil and left some sitting out in the air. After three years, to her surprise, she found some of them still intact.
7: Not one of the bags could completely vanish or completely degrade in all of the environments. And particularly in the soil and the marine environment, some of the bags could still hold a full bag of shopping.
1: During my research for this podcast, I came to believe that bioplastics might just be the most confusing material humans have ever invented. Even some of the experts told me they struggle. So let me try to wrap this up. Bioplastics occupy a tiny market. Only two million tons are produced each year, compared with hundreds of millions of tons of conventional plastics. And half of the bioplastics are just bio-based, not biodegradable. Whether the other half can really biodegrade depends on the type and mixture of plastic, the environment it ends up in, and the microbes that are present there. Because they are the ones who do all the work. There are no globally accepted standards yet to make sure bioplastics can degrade in soil or the oceans. And some say it's better that way. Because in the open environment, the materials we have today are no solution to plastic pollution. Could this change with new technology? I asked Fredrik Wurm, the chemist.
3: So there are at least academic approaches for that. So being a chemist, a synthetic chemist, you can build in many molecular triggers. For example, when you have a certain wavelength of light or maybe electricity, magnetism, there are many, many stimuli that you can install into a synthetic polymer chain. When you switch this stimulus on, it will degrade. But this is... It sounds fancy, it is fancy, and it's it's expensive.
1: Unfortunately, it's not only an issue of cost. Building molecular triggers into every material for every environment seems to be an almost impossible task. And plastic is a traveler, so we can never know where it might end up.
2: I do not not think it makes sense to make marine biodegradable packaging and even and even if you do so you should not label it as a marine biodegradable packaging because for consumers that would mean ah, i can just throw it away it would give the wrong message
1: and that leaves us with the good old low-tech solutions to plastic pollution
3: by just reducing the amounts of packaging that we have on the types of different packaging that we have in our supermarkets we can do a lot without developing novel materials just reducing it and see what is, what is not necessary.
1: The bioplastics we have today might offer benefits for some applications. But they are not going to magically disappear when we are done with them. The most environmentally friendly plastic of all is still the one that we don't use.
0: That was an episode of The Plastosphere by Anja Krieger. You can subscribe to The Plastosphere by searching for it wherever you listen to podcasts or by visiting its website, plasisphere.earth. And if you'd like to support the independent work Anya is doing, you can donate to the show through Patreon, and thereby help her make more episodes. I'm Kevin Caners. So long for now.